Anna McNuff is running. But all of a sudden, she feels this pain in her foot. The cut happened just outside Sheffield and it was a tiny piece of glass and it had been a day when I'd run over loads of grit and it was a miserable day. But she couldn't stop. She knew she had to keep running. I had a group of 20 people with me and the cut on my bottom of my foot started to hurt and I thought, oh, it's only a tiny cut. I looked at it again, I tried to stick something over it to cover it up and it kept falling off and I didn't want to keep holding up the whole group by stopping to bandage my foot. So she ran through the pain. And then, as it was just getting dark... It was about eight o'clock that night and I just started to feel this wobble, wobble in the bottom of my foot. I'm Rob Pope. I'm from Red Bull. This is How To Be Superhuman. On this week's episode, we're hearing a very different type of story. In 2019, Anna McNuff set off to run the equivalent of 90 marathons through Britain. Sounds tough, but doable, right? You know, a lot of people have gone Land's End John O'Groats before, but Anna's not like a lot of people, trust me. And she wasn't doing this run like a lot of people have done before. That's because she was running barefoot. Now, I love my shoes. Whether it was the retro Cortez that I began my running, or the more luxurious variants that took me from Alabama to the Pacific, to the Atlantic, to the, you, you get the picture. I just couldn't imagine nothing separating my feet from the tarmac. I got enough blisters as it was. Well, apparently it is natural, as we'll find out later. After horrendous weather conditions and a pretty serious foot infection, would Anna be able to reach the finish line in London in one piece? Did you walk barefoot here today? I didn't, you know, and I know people were surprised that I've come in wearing shoes, but I feel like I've done my bit for the barefooting for the planet and I am very happy to be back in shoes at this point. Yeah, I'm not wearing my Forrest Gump cap anymore no, either. No, that's so. it, isn't it? It's an era <laughs> of your life. You can let it go and mourn it and let it let it pass. He, he says, pretending he's letting it go. <laughs> well, anyway, tell us about your upbringing. Where did this all begin? Oh, it's crazy because I came from a very sporty background, which I would say is, is different to adventure. So my parents are both Olympians. So I grew up with, there's a bronze medal, Olympic medal on my living room wall. And you just, as a kid, you think that's normal, right? Does uh, it come out for the Christmas decorations? Uh, no, it gets decorated around. And I'm so <laughs> bored of seeing, you know, you just get blasé about it. And it's also surrounded by all these, it's, uh, my parents were rowers at Moscow in 1980. Um, but it's surrounded by all these Henley medals and world championship medals and all this stuff and so I was definitely brought up in a family where we were always doing loads of sport and my parents really encouraged us to do sport but I remember on Sundays that sometimes when I didn't have football game or something else we would be dragged out to the Surrey Hills to go and walk up a hill and I thought it was the most boring thing on the planet why do I want to look at trees why do I want to this is not why do I want to get muddy and there's no I'm not chasing a ball around I don't understand you mentioned that for someone who's like pretty famous for boots shoes or lack of yeah you 
could have been well known for actually wearing football boots. Oh yeah, I used to play for Wimbledon ladies um, back in the day when when Wimbledon were in the Premiership, and it was really interesting back then because it was the cusp of women's professional football. So I think there was only one professional women's team, and it was Fulham were getting paid. Uh, so that's really interesting now to look back on when I was sixteen, and there were no you know professional women's teams, and now look at the rise of the lionesses. But that was my background really, and then I went from football and into um, a lot. Of, I did every sport under the sun but then I took up rowing and that got quite serious and um, ended up rowing for Britain until I was about 23. Strong genes. Strong genes. <laughs> I've, got, I've got freakishly long arms. I've got like ridiculously long arms. So um, I put them to good use. But um, but yeah, that was that was really different to what I do now, which is adventure. And I think it took me a while to realise I don't Going fast and not taking, paying any attention to the landscape is not for me. I actually like to stop, have a chat, drink tea and, and follow all the little curiosities as I go along. So why did you give up rowing itself? Was that, did you think you'd gone as far as you could have done or was it just not for you? Uh, no, it was actually one of the hardest decisions of my life and, and it still is a very formative decision because I'd wanted to be an Olympian since I was five years old. You know, mm-hmm. I think if you've got two parents that are Olympians it just it wasn't a question of what am I going to do it was just well of course you pick a sport you get good at it you go to the Olympics you work hard and that's you know that's what happens Olympics 101 that's it honestly that's how simple it was in my mind and then of course the older you get the more you realise how many variables there are in that and how hard you have to work and the sacrifices you have to make I was in a sport where I would absolutely train myself to the bone to the point where I wasn't looking after myself, I wasn't recovering. I didn't make the 2008 Olympics and I thought, do I carry on in the hope that I can make London and all my dreams will come true in four years' time and I potentially put myself through another four years of misery or do I say, do you know what, I need to take my life in a different direction? So the road to London was over and then then you joined the rat race. Oh my gosh, I thought what do I do with my life? And I had this strange voice that said, I think you need to grow up now, Anna, and you need to go and get a proper job. But then I'm starting back down at the bottom of the ladder. So I went and worked at a PR company in Soho. I sat behind a pink bubble. I was a receptionist. And I thought, this is it. This is awesome. This is what I'm going to do. <laughs> Ended up getting um, on the graduate scheme for marketing at a big TV company. Spent six years there. And then after those six years, I kind of came to and realised whoa, whoa, what, I've lost my way. What am I doing here? I don't want to be here anymore. And it wasn't for me. And that was when I did my first big adventure. And what was that? I cycled a beautiful pink bicycle called Boudica through every state of America for 11,000 miles. Had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to fix bikes. Nothing about cycle touring or map read or anything. I just, I couldn't explain this feeling of there is something more out there and this just urge for adventure and wanderlust and testing my body and all of that and so I went for it. Pink bubble to pink bike's quite a, <laughs> quite a step but like what was it that finally made you just go no this isn't for me and what made you just go and what, like, what made you choose that? I think it was I questioned do I still want to be doing what I'm doing with my life now in terms of uh, my work, but also everything else that was in place in my life. Do I want to be doing that in five years' time? And the, the answer straight away, no. And then I thought, well, if I don't want to be doing it in five years' time, why am I, I doing it now and why am I not doing anything to get me out of it? And I think it was that realisation, I was 28 at the time, that I had a choice, which sounds ridiculous, 
But I think, you know, you go from school and then if you've chosen to go to university, you're kind of in this like conveyor belt and you don't actually stop and realise that the way we see the world, you know, in our Western lives and especially office workers, it is just one way of living your life. And I suddenly realised that I didn't have to be there and that I was making a series of choices that kept me there. And that was terrifying. I thought I just needed to get it out of my system but it turned into going and running the length of New Zealand and then spending six months cycling through the Andes Mountains. And then I even did a trip but directed by social media where I set off from London and decided that I would let social media tell me where to go. <laughs> where did you end up? I, um, I ended up on the Mediterranean Sea. Marseille. That sounds all right. Do you know, but right, are you a planner, Rob? I don't know if you're a planner. I, I like to plan and then I like to casually forget the plans as I'm going along. Right. So you probably sound similar to, well, yeah. I, I, I mean, my <laughs> other half doesn't plan at all. So I think he's the other end. But I did that trip because I thought, I'm a planner. So what does it feel like to be not just physically uncomfortable, but mentally uncomfortable? Mm. And it was hideous. I, I had no, I couldn't focus or fixate on where I was going. Every day was just, you know, the votes coming in on social media, left, right or straight on. Did anybody suggest sort of potentially doing the length of Britain at all? Where did that idea come up? That was, I was running this trail in New Zealand, beautiful trail for hiking or running called the Tiaroa Trail. And towards the north section of that trail, I was going into schools, I was giving talks all the way along to kids. And as I went into the schools, loads of the kids were barefoot until at least till they're 11, especially in the North Island of New Zealand. And, you know, they don't even bring their shoes to school. That is just the way they are. And it just took me back to my childhood. And I thought, A, that looks like fun. B, I remember being barefoot a lot more when I was a kid. And it was awesome. And I just thought, oh, I wonder if it'd be possible to do a long barefoot run. And I'd read Born to Run and, um, and I'd, I'd done all what everyone else did after reading that book. Read Born to Run, go out, buy some Vibram Five Fingers, <laughs> run 10k and smash a calf to bits and uh, destroy yourself. Um, Do you mean the Bruce Springsteen song Born to Run? <laughs> that's it, the Born to Run. No, I mean the book, but that is a fantastic song as well. Tell us about why this book's so important to the running community. You're right, it is very important to the running community and I think it divides a lot of people because some people think it went too far, but basically it puts forward a case for the fact that we are born to run. This guy, Christopher McDougall, he details the fact that we used to catch our prey by running and our ability to sweat and keep going for long distances over periods of time at slow speed is what allowed us to catch our prey in the past. And so we're innately born to run, but that also when we did run great distances in the past, we didn't have shoes with huge wedges and loads of support and we didn't know about pronation and overpronation and all of that. But so, now we're going under two hours in the marathon. I'm, I'm, I'm such I a know. shoe advocate. Like, sort of a, <laughs> and there is, you know, there's a debate, isn't there, about the technology in that shoe. And I'm all for it. Um, I'm not, I think, after I did the recent run, which was the big barefoot run, I sometimes get mistaken for a barefoot evangelist. And I am not that. <laughs> I am not, I am not the, 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 you know, in charge of that. I, um, I just, for me, it always comes from a, a curiosity of, just because that's the way everyone believes it to be, is that actually true? Mm. And I'm going to go and find that out for myself. And I think the thing is, it's all individual. For yeah. me, I love wearing, you know, I, I don't, I do wear shoes now, but they're very minimalist shoes. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love the way it feels. I love how connected I feel. I like the way it makes me run, the way my body reacts to it. That's cool for me. And I think whatever you want to run in, whatever you want to put on your feet, go for it. 
What did your friends and family think, basically, when you said you were going to run the length of Britain? You'd done big things before, but then you dropped the bomb on them that there would be no shoes this time. So it was about three years from when I had the idea and I spent a, a year and a half working out in my head whether or not I thought it was possible. Because I straight away had the idea. First thought was, I want to do a long barefoot run through Britain. Second thought comes into my head, don't be ridiculous, McNuff. <laughs> what are you on? That is too far. Um, don't do it because it's just a gimmick and it will be painful, not possible. You won't enjoy it. And then, um, so I spent a year and a half actually just testing it out, running in less and less footwear. And then I thought, yeah, do you know what? This is possible. And that's when I told people. At this point, I'd be d- been doing big adventures for six years and I I don't think I have anyone left around me in my life that would tell me I can't do something. They they understand. They embrace the bonkers, yeah. basically. They they get it. And that's not necessarily a, a conscious decision, but I just, as time's gone on, I've gravitated more towards the people that go, just because that's not been done before doesn't mean you can't do it. Like, why not? Great. Go for it. That kind of attitude's fantastic. Is that what attracted you to like the Girl Guiding organisation? Yeah, good question. Yeah, and I, I think because... I got back involved with the Girl Guides just a couple of years ago because I was a rainbow, a brownie and a guide. A did very... you get any good badges? Uh, oh, yeah. What did I have? Agility was my favourite one, which sounds <laughs> ridiculous. Um, did, were you a scout? I was a cub. You were yeah. a cub. Were you well behaved as a cub? <laughs> no, I got my entertainment badge and quit. That was it. Boom. That's all you came for. Drop the mic. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know what badge it was, but we used to make digestive biscuits and put icing sugar on top of them and then just sprinkle it with hundreds and thousands. I don't know what badge that was, but Co- it was great. Cooking? That probably. Yeah. That was cooking. That was it. Junior Bake Off. But I had my first really happy experiences with guides. So then a few years ago, I found out that for the first time in something like 37 years, they were changing their badge program and they were updating it and they were bringing in you know, campaigning, entrepreneurship, um, bushcraft. And I just thought, this is actually a really cool feminist organisation and one that's really keen on getting girls out adventuring. And that's something I feel like I can support. So that's why I decided to use the Barefoot Run to go and talk to loads of girl guides and get them kicking butt and out there. Of course, uh, you know, something that's, you know, it's, well, it's worldwide, but it's also all over the country. Like, did that like sort of influence your route planning? Yeah, so my route, because I mean... If you looked at my route, it looks like someone's gone crazy on an etch sketch It's, what are you doing? It's hardly a direct Land's End John O'Groats, is <laughs> no, it? No, <laughs> I think that's it. Lots of people say, oh, you're running Land's End to John O'Groats. Yeah, no, via millions of other places. <laughs> uh, it was a mixture of where in Britain do I want to go, which is why I've got things in there. Like I started in the Shetland Islands. I went round the Isle of Man. Um, I included the Channel Islands and the Isle of Wight. And uh, and there was a mixture of that, but also where are the girl guiding communities? So I would spend, I spent two months in Scotland and I would happily have run around Scotland for the whole time. But in the mountains of the Highlands, there's not that many girls to talk to. So I had to do a mixture between the two. And so you've got your route. Yeah. You've got your goal. Yeah. Uh, how did you really start training for this? Because you said you you prepared your feet, but this wasn't just you know it wasn't all about the feet this is a pretty athletic endeavor yeah well the first thing I did is I thought I'm going to read loads of books I'm going to go and buy loads of books about barefoot running I did that for a few weeks and read them and thought do you know what the only way to learn how to barefoot run is to go barefoot running which was really annoying um and then I basically just I did take it quite seriously when I stand on that start line up in the Shetland Islands and I'm trying to run this you know distance of 100 marathons in my bare feet you can't mess around with that. You've got to be prepared or you're going to fall on your face spectacularly. And that nearly came true for Anna. 
as she left her house without the aid of her running shoes for the very first time. My first training run was actually in March time and it was a year and a bit out from starting the run and I thought, no messing around, I need to crack on, I need to actually do this, start this training. Unfortunately, that day it snowed. And I thought, it doesn't matter that it snowed, stop being soft, McNuff. You've got to get out there and you've got to go and do this run anyway. So with her teeth gritted, she broke into a slow jog up the hill. And I thought, I just need to do 20 minutes. If I can do 20 minutes, then I'll be absolutely fine. And my feet are in agony because there's snow all over the ground. I'm slipping all over the place. I get up to the top of the hill and I start running along the ridge line and I just think, oh my gosh, and now my feet have gone numb. I thought, right, I'm going to check my watch now. And I looked at my watch and I'd done five minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> and my feet were gone. I was in so much pain. It was so cold. I was just so angry that A, I'd gone out there and not done what I said I would. B, have I gone crazy? And is this going to be too far if I can't even do 20 minutes in the snow? And what if it snows while I'm on the run? So all of those things. And that was my first training run. It was a complete disaster. Well, you mentioned the marathons. You did one in particular. Yeah, I did. I did the London Marathon. That, I was so nervous because I've made this huge announcement to everyone that I'm going to run this you know, distance of 100 marathons and I'm about to do one, the London Marathon, very publicly. Everyone's excited and following. And I think at that point I'd never actually run further than 17 miles on tarmac in one go. But it was the best experience and it went like a dream when my feet were sore at the end. Everyone around me was hilarious. I think at about mile four, I picked up this Irish woman who ran next to me and ran round me in little circles and was shouting at everyone, barefoot runner, barefoot runner, be careful, be careful. And, I was, <laughs> and so I had my own little personal security guard until she realised I was all right. Let me guess, she was the only person who stood on your feet the whole she, time. She was, she was getting in my way as she was going round and round warning everyone else. It was hilarious, but I loved it. I just And running through the streets of East London, the, the commentary from the sidelines, go on, Anna, they'd say, and they'd see my name, my shirt. And then they'd see my bare feet and they'd go, go on, Anna. Or they'd go, yeah, she got no shoes on. That girl's not wearing any shoes. And I'd just catch it as I went past. I just remember turning the corner down the, the mall at the finish and you come onto that red tarmac and you see Buckingham Palace. And I just felt this surge of how dare other people try and tell me what I am and am not capable of because I don't even know myself. And I felt that I had just surprised myself. And I felt this pride and this kind of like... I even need to remind myself, never underestimate what you're capable of because no one else knows and you don't even know sometimes as well. And I'd really surprise myself. So that was cool confidence booster. But then 40,000 gets whittled down to one. Yeah, I know. And you, An find yourself, you find yourself... So did you start in the Shetlands? Yeah, I started at a place called Score, which is the most northerly house in Britain, is up at Score. It's a beach um, yeah, way up in the most northern island of the Shetland Islands. So that is, just to put it in context, geography-wise, it's in line with the bottom of Greenland. So you are way up there. Set the scene for us. Who was there? Like, sort of, you know, the sights, the sounds, the um, smells? The smells, yeah. Loads of beautiful birds, some strange bird watchers hanging around, um, beautiful kind of orange, sandy, 
beach, very rugged looking, almost like the coast of Cornwall, that kind of feel. I had a small crowd of people there, mostly from the local community who'd heard about what I was doing. And of course, they loved it. They thought it was crazy that I was going to run to London from them. And there was this woman called Jane there who I was really struggling for hosts on the Shetland Islands. And she somehow found my number and called me up and said, you're going to come and stay with me. And I said, great, could you could you send me your address? And she said, oh, just tell the bus driver that you're staying with Jane and he'll let you <laughs> off at my house. And I just, I thought, great. So um, really, really special memories of the Shetland Islands. Just, uh, you know, they've got puffins and Shetland ponies and the Shetland ponies were giving birth to foals that are the size of dogs, but they're horses. So, yeah, very, very special place. So you'd taken the beach and now you're yeah. on the road. How did you actually choose the terrain you were going to run on? Because I would be like trying to like run through people's front gardens on the grass and everything like that. You know, I, I would be yeah. avoiding the road like the plague. Yeah, which helps because in Scotland they've got the right to roam. So you can be wherever you want to be on their land, which is really cool. Uh, yeah, they have this spiky tarmac up in the Shetland Islands, which uh, is called, I call it, naughty tarmac or spray <laughs> spray and pray where they basically lay a layer of tar down and then they just spray rock chips over the top did and you know about this before you went no i was not informed <laughs> um so that straight away i mean that stuff if it's really bad it really just cuts your feet to ribbons so i started having to take alternative action up in the shetland islands and a lot of the land is peat bogs so on the third day i was scrambling off around the peat bogs along the coastline and i caught my toe caught in a peat bog and my big Big toe stayed in the peat bog and my whole body carried on forwards. So then I had this big swollen toe. But my strategy changed the whole way through. So mm-hmm. it's like anything, isn't it? You you start with a you start with an idea. Adapt a, or die. Yeah, yeah. That's it. You start with these grand plans, they go out the window. And I actually found that if the tarmac wasn't too bad, as I continued down the country and once I got out of Scotland. If the tarmac wasn't too bad, I actually ended up following cycle trails so I could be on quiet country back roads and make steady measured progress. And, and that's what I went for. So it went. It started with more trails. And then as I got further south, I ended up on country back roads. How did the feet cope in the first week? Oh, they were... <laughs> I see what I mean I'm not a barefoot evangelist I'm not doing a great job because they were (laughs) agony they were absolute agony because I think as much preparation as I'd done there's nothing you can do to prepare your feet for running you know 20 odd miles a day with Mm -hmm. nothing on them and I think the thing was my, my body was adapting my mind was adapting everything was uncomfortable and my feet the skin on my feet was sore as well and it probably took them about six weeks before they got really really hard and it was a blimmin' hot summer in Scotland, so I had a lot of that nice hot tarmac. And I remember it was it was one evening where they they started tingling and they didn't stop tingling till about two o'clock in the morning, which was quite annoying. But I tried I was trying to scratch them and I couldn't get any purchase on my skin. You know, my nails wouldn't go in because mm. the the skin was so hard they would just sort of skim over the top of it. And that's when I thought, I've got some panther paws now. Here yeah. we go. Yeah. I, I know my feet got to the sort of point where I, I got like you know, sort of a uh, soft boy blisters after the first sort of couple of weeks, and yeah. then eventually like, the feet hardened. And I found I got these calluses, and then at one point I thought it actually like broke my foot. But what it was was a blister underneath the callus. Did you get anything like that? No, I didn't. That sounds really painful, and I've yeah. heard about that. Um, I didn't get any blisters under the callus, but what I did get is I got a foot infection about a thousand miles in. The cut happened just outside Sheffield and it was a tiny piece of glass and it had been a day when I'd run over loads of grit and it was a miserable day. Just a little cut. No big deal. Anna thought it was nothing. 
And then I did some media interviews before I ran out again and I had a group of 20 people with me and the, the, the cut on my the bottom of my foot started to hurt and I thought, oh, it's only a tiny cut. I looked at it again, I tried to stick something over it to cover it up and it kept falling off and I didn't want to keep holding up the whole group by stopping to bandage my foot. Because there were all these people counting on her, stopping wasn't an option. And I think it was about eight o'clock that night when I was giving another talk to the girl guides and I was stood there and I just started to feel this wob, wob in the bottom of my foot. Oh, it's the feeling that every athlete dreads. And then that night, sure enough, it kept me awake till about three in the morning, waves of pain, and the following day, I tried to go running on it and just couldn't. When did you first realise that was happening? Did you just think you were being soft? Oh, always. <laughs> yes, you think like I do. First thing, cutting my foot, straight away I think, oh, it's a bit sore, that's fine, I'll go out and run on it. So I tried to run on it, and I'm bearing in mind it is ballooned at this point, and it, it was waves of pain through the night, and I get up the next morning, I, I think, oh, I'm just going to run on it, it'll be fine. Because my, my feeling was, if I just pound on that area of my foot enough times, it will desensitise, the pain will go away, and I'll just be able to run on, and it'll only hurt again afterwards. I'm sure you're thinking, this is familiar. It's definitely that, yeah, and then you, then you regret it 2,000 miles on. Exactly, but I thought, I'm just going to pound on this until the pain disappears, and I just, I could barely put any weight on it. It was like it was like standing on, on a razor blade. And, it, and again, I called my, my boyfriend, Jamie, who does, you know, similar things, and he said to me, are you sure you can't run in it? I think you should go and test it out for half a mile. Talk about tough love. <laughs> so I went back out and then no, ended up in tears. Um, but, but yeah, I think a lot, I have a four-day pain rule normally. If it hurts with muscular stuff, as long as it moves around after four days or it changes, then that, that's fine. You can crack on, but it's when it goes past that point. What was it that made you finally seek medical attention? What did they say? Oh, well, this is the thing, because I, I then got really embarrassed. When, and everyone was saying, you should march in there and tell them what you're doing. You know, you're on this big run and for, you know, girl guiding and everything. And I was just embarrassed because I thought this is everything anyone, any naysayer has ever said to me, which is, you know, what happens when you get a cut in your foot? Mm. You're going to be a burden on the NHS. <laughs> and, you know, all those horrible comments you have to deal with. And so I went into the hospital and I didn't actually tell them what I was doing. I just said, I've stood on a piece of glass and I've cut my foot and I think it's infected. But of course then what happens, you know, with the best will in the world, they, they're a doctor thinking they're seeing a normal person. And at one point, the, uh, the second doctor I'd seen, she was basically just... She just she just slapped a plaster on it and said, just go away and rest for three days. And, and if it's still painful after that, then come back. But as she was doing it, she was asking me questions about, so you're not from, I was at a drop-in centre, so you're not from round here then? And I, I said, oh, no, no. And she said, how long are you in the area? And I said, oh, well, I'm kind of moving around. And she said, she said, OK. And then she looked at my dirty feet and my sweaty clothes, you know, my drawn face. And she just said are you homeless? And I said, no, I'm not homeless, you know. And, and then I had to explain and fess up. But, um, yeah, they basically slapped a plaster on it. So then two days later, it was still in agony and I took to Twitter. I said, I need a doctor who understands ultra running, who's keen to get me back out there and back on my feet. 
anyone know anyone. Someone tagged someone else in and I managed to get his number. I called him up and this guy called Adam, legend in Stockport. And he said, yeah, yeah, okay, Anna, I understand. I think what you're doing is brilliant. You know, he didn't question it, didn't tell me I was mad. And he said, I can come and see you and look at your foot, but I need to go and run a marathon on a running track first and then I'll be over. (laughs) So ultra running Dr. Adam came and saved the day and he was amazing, looked after me, sorted me out, got me some antibiotics. Yeah. (laughs) So you were like sort of coping okay physically. Yeah. You got to Scotland. It's quite a long way from Scotland down to London, especially before we consider the roundabout way you were going to take it. How were you feeling at this point? I tried not to think too far ahead. I never thought more than the first 500 miles, I thought, which I think happened at around about Dundee in Scotland. And I thought, if I can make it those 500 miles, I'll just worry about making it to Dundee. So... Scotland was all about that, really. And, I mean, you're right, Scotland, there's a long way. A, there's a lot north of Edinburgh that I think if you live in London or you're a city person, you don't realise you think Edinburgh is the most northerly place in the world. And then you go, oh, wow, really, there's a lot north of that. So I I just loved it, yeah, and I basically spent two months running around Scotland. And then the crazy thing is I got to Dundee, I passed that first 500 miles, and I had a meltdown. Would you go 500 more? Yeah, that's it. I had that going through my head at the time. I uh, yeah, I I thought I thought how can I possibly do another five hundred? That was really hard. And then I just thought, right, we'll just think about the next three hundred then. So I uh, the goal felt too big, so I broke it down. Um, and and that's how I was getting through everything. It was just a few hundred miles at a time, and I just kept thinking, don't think beyond that, as you'll fall apart. Just think to the next next goal. I want to hear about some of these incredible people who joined you. Tell us stories about a few of the characters you met. There was one guy down in Bournemouth and um, he suffers from anxiety and depression and he started using running as as a means to cope with that. And he came out one day and he ran five miles with me. And then he was buzzing at the end of it and he couldn't believe he'd done it because he'd only done like a 5K before. And then he came back the next week. He came and joined me on another section and he ran 13 miles. And I thought, well, this is this is amazing. This is really impressive. And then the next time he joined me, it was Halloween. So he turned up dressed as a lobster. <laughs> don't, know <what> that's, <laughs> don't know what that's got to do with Halloween. Well-known Halloween costume. Yeah, yeah. And he ran 24 miles and he was in the pain cave. I mean, from mile 20, we could barely get a word out of him. And we could, his name's Mike. You're right, Mike. You're right, Mike. And and we just kept asking him. And he, he was just, you could see, he was determined. He was going to make it. He was going to run these 24 miles. And at the end, he made me sign his lobster claw. And we just kept saying to him, you are one inspirational lobster man. And, um, <laughs> and I just loved, I'd watched him on that journey over the course of a few weeks, just come back and keep testing himself and pushing himself. And goodness knows what he's going to do now but it didn't even matter about the distance what he's found out is that he can go further than he thinks he can and that happened several times over with men with women it was just a beautiful thing to watch there was one woman called amy and I'm smiling because she's absolutely brilliant. She was a nurse with a mum of three kids and she'd come straight off a night shift. She'd finished at eight o'clock that morning and she came and met me at half past nine to do a run and we were doing 22 miles that day. I think she'd run a half marathon about 10 years ago but really only ran about five miles. So she started off with us. And then after five miles, she said, oh, well, Amy, OK, you've got to be heading back now. She said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to keep going. And running had become her time for herself and away from the kids. 
And as the run carried on, you start to bond more and more with these people. And even though you're only with them for a day, you get very deep conversations. And I chatted to her about she'd suffered a lot with postnatal depression and then depression separate of that as well. And running was her cure for that. And then we carried on 10 miles, 15 miles, and Amy was still going. And then we got to 17 miles and every stop Amy was having to, she was getting down on the ground on all fours and then we'd feed her jelly babies while she was on the floor. And then we'd say, you're right, Amy, you're ready to go. And she would roar like a lion from the floor. And then she'd get up and be like, all right, Amy, yeah. And then she'd run on again. So she made it the whole way. And I remember the finish, we were ahead of her and we got to the finish point and Amy's coming down the road and she is like sprinting for the finish line. And, uh, and she got in and everyone just hugged her. There were about five other people with her. And it was just all about Amy that day. When you got to London, I really, like, so being a big Beatles fan myself, please tell me you went across Abbey Road barefoot. I didn't. You've I missed didn't. such an opportunity. I know. What is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Do you know what? By the end, the last two weeks, I was just a shell of a woman. I was just, <laughs> I just wasn't even there. I was going through all the motions, but mentally I was gone. And I think that was really interesting because it made me realise how I'd I'd managed to stay stronger through the first part of the journey and how I'd played all these mind games. And into the last two weeks, I lost the ability to motivate myself and to play these mind games. And I really, really struggle with motivation because the finish line's in sight, yeah. So the finish line in London, where exactly was that? Uh, it was beautiful Wimbledon Common, which I'd, I used to run cross-country there as a kid. It is a complete bog in the winter, which is great. The final day started with everyone gathered at this place in Kingston called Cambry Gardens, which was pretty special to me because it's where everyone used to go and hang out when we were 15 years old. You know, I went to school in Kingston, so it was where you used to go hang out, snog boys and everything. So that, like, set the scene. So it was so weird to be there as a fully-fledged adult doing this crazy adventure. And just one by one, you know, people just started gathering until we had this group of a couple of hundred people, runners, dressed really brightly, and there's all this chatter going on. And I just kept thinking, this is going to be over soon, this is going to be over soon, but it's okay, you've still got, you know, it's about a seven-mile run, still got seven miles, it's fine, it's fine. And some people had come out and they were barefoot, which was cool. So at one point I was busy watching a barefoot runner in front of me uh, run across this slope of mud and he slipped and stacked it and I was watching him and laughing and then I went and stacked it as well. And of course everyone thinks it's hilarious because I'm supposed to be experienced and I'm falling over. And then we get across to Wimbledon Common, which is always really, really muddy. So I announce this to everyone and say, right, guys, you're about to get really muddy. And everyone cheers like, yeah, bring it on. So then I remember we get into Wimbledon Common and there's this beautiful little Italian garden section called Canizaro Park. And I rounded the bend at the last tree and I just saw there were loads of rainbows and guides all stood around and other people as well. And they're holding Goanna signs and Barefoot Britain, you're my hero. And they've pulled a little finish line tape across. So I'm running towards this finish line tape and I look behind me and there's a string of like 110 runners just going down the trail. And I just, that was when everything started going in slow motion. I just thought, this is so surreal. 
And then, for some reason, there were people with macaw parrots at the finish line. So these macaws start flying around on strings, and I thought, this is crazy. So there's macaw parrots, three of them, going around, swirling above our head as we all surge as a, as a group towards the finish line. And then, yeah, I just crossed it across the line and thought, that's it, I've, I've, I've run from the Shetland Islands in my bare feet. It's just mad. It's crazy. Thanks so much to Anna for being my guest on How To Be Superhuman, brought to you by Red Bull. So please remember, subscribe and leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast, and also get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag Red Bull How To Be Superhuman to share tales of your own superhuman feats, or maybe suggest other people we should talk to with incredible stories. We'd love to hear from you. And on next week's episode, we'll be chatting to the extraordinary Gabriel Cordell, who rolled over 3,000 miles across America in his wheelchair. I broke down. I broke down because I thought, this is it. Everything that I have worked for, everything that I have sacrificed, and that's it. It's over at mile 650. That's next time on How To Be Superhuman. How to be superhuman is a something else production for Red Bull Media House.